0: And, you know, I, unfortunately, I lost my great mentor, uh, my dear, dear friend and mentor and colleague, Bob Ocher, passed away in yeah. December. I had a chance to visit with Bob uh, before he passed. I gave him a copy of the book. I pointed out the dedication to him in the book. And I said to him, I said, Bob, uh, I can never repay you for everything you've done for me, uh, the, the, the time that you invested in me and how you helped me. But I will try. And my pledge to you is to work with my students and to help them the way that you helped me. And he, he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, thank you. That means an awful lot to me. And it means a lot to me to be able to, be able to, to have told him that. And I hope that my students are inspired by me, and I hope that they will inspire others. That's, that's the circle of education that never breaks.
1: And on the show today, Dr. Jim Weiss here to talk about lessons learned through academics, sport, and leadership. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily. up in Dresden, Ontario, a small town with a population of only 2,400, Dr. Jim Weiss looks back on his life with tremendous gratitude and appreciation for the opportunities he had to be a part of a community that placed so much value on family and sport. It was during his early years that Jim developed a passion for playing sport, and it was through these experiences that he not only learned so much about himself, But also had the opportunity to connect with important mentors in his life. Jim was an avid ice hockey player and developed a real passion for the sport. Although he had aspirations of playing professionally, he understood how difficult it was to make it at that level. During this time, Jim's physical education teacher in high school had a huge impact on his life, ultimately inspiring him to follow in his footsteps. Little did Jim know it at the time, but he would go on to win the Young Professional Award by the Canadian Association for Health, Physical Education and Recreation in 1987. And it was through the lenses of sport and leadership, Jim began to see the world differently and ultimately found certain strengths within himself that would go on to serve him so well in the work that he has done in both academics and athletics. In this episode, Jim speaks about important mentors and the support that they gave him in helping him to find his true calling in life. In particular, it was Dr. Bob Boucher, the former Dean of Human Kinetics at the University of Windsor, who really believed in Jim and helped to navigate and guide him on his trajectory into academic leadership. Some of the positions that Jim has held over the years are the Director of Cooperative Education in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor from 1986 to 1991, the Director of the Department of Kinesiology at University of Windsor from 1997 to 2000, and the Dean of the Faculty of Human Kinetics from 2000 to 2004. It was in 2004 that Jim transitioned to a new role at Western University in London, Ontario to take on the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences until 2015. As well, he was the Special Advisor to the Provost at Western University in 2015. Although Jim has had a deep impact in the field of academics, his work in leadership has really been the main source of inspiration and motivation over the past several years. His book, The 5C Leader, Exceptional Leadership Practices for Extraordinary Times, was released in 2018 and has been widely read and well-received by both aspiring leaders and also experienced leaders in a variety of organizations and businesses. In this book, Jim distills over 100 years of leadership research and theory development. He couples it with his extensive research program, mixes in his consulting experience and his practical experience, and delivers a leadership book rooted in what he calls the five C's, credibility, compelling vision, charismatic communicator, contagious enthusiasm, and culture builder. We dive into a conversation about the 5Cs, giving specific examples of their application in the role of leadership, and also unpack some of the myths around what being a leader means. I've known Jim for more than 25 years, and it was a pleasure to have him on my show. As we are both avid golfers, we end this conversation with a short discussion about the game of golf and what it means to us. I highly encourage you to get your hands on a copy of Jim's book, The 5C Leader. Links to the book can be found in the show notes of this episode. Now, let's jump right into this discussion with Jim talking about early days in life.
0: Well, Andy, I'm uh, from a small town in uh, southern Ontario in Canada population 2400 and uh, I would not have it any other way. You know, growing up in a small town you have uh, loads of opportunity. You 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 uh, your parents uh, and and your 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 friends parents they, they coach you, they mentor you and and I've had incredible incredible coaches and mentors throughout my life. You know, growing up uh, I had one major interest and that was sport. Everything I wanted to do revolved around sport. I came under the influence of uh, an incredible physical education teacher, a fellow by the Bob Nor- uh, by the name of Bob North, who was a wonderful mentor for me and role model for me. And I wanted to be exactly like him. And uh, he was he he coached all the teams in our in our high school, and he was just a a, a really interesting fellow. And uh, so that uh, you know my my early days when sport uh, sport has really. Uh, been the central focus of my life and uh, I was a hockey player and golfer primarily all the way up through uh, Dresden and my Dresden upbringing and uh, that uh, some of my best friends in life remain my Dresden friends we've been we've been uh, friends since infants and we still get together we our kids are now friends our wives are friends And I just love that small town environment. So, you know, it's often been said the key to life is pick your parents well. And I did very well in that uh, regard because uh, of the upbringing opportunities that I had in that small town.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I'm I'm from Kingsville, Ontario. So very, very small town and moved to Windsor. And then, you know, really Windsor meant everything to me. And I was a product of the football system in Windsor, played football, junior football. Uh, senior team, and then that moved to AKO, and then the university team, and that's where we met. So I was a quarterback and punter for the University of Windsor. I
0: remember you in in those roles, Andy, as well. So very much. So so again, you know, the the whole sport focus did believe me. And I remember having a discussion with my father about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was convinced I needed to find a way to stay in sport. And uh, naturally, like all kids, you want to play in the National Hockey League, but uh, you you soon realize that's not going to happen. So what I did was I I went to the University of Windsor, which was, again, a a decision that I made that, that, that transformed my life. Because it was a smaller institution, it provided more opportunity as well. I did look at some other schools, but university of Windsor gave me an opportunity in the faculty of human kinetics to come under the influence of some great mentors. It also gave me an opportunity to play on two varsity teams. So I played five years on the hockey team. And I also played on the golf team when I was there as a member of the hockey team. It, uh, again, I, I encountered some lifelong friends, including, uh, I went there with one of my childhood buddies, who was again, one of my best friends in life. And, uh, that opportunity at Windsor was available to me. It may not have been available to me at other schools. Mm-hmm. Also at Windsor, and again, studying my field, I remember having this discussion with my father and, and he said, well, what are you going to do with a degree in physical education, human kinetics? And I, I remember saying, I will figure it out. My dad was a car dealer. I think his great dream was for me to go back into, into Dresden and take over that uh, business. But that wasn't my passion. My passion was sport. And, you know, for 35 years, I've said to students, follow your passion. You'll always do better in things that you are interested in. And uh, find a job that you love, Confucius once said, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I really do believe. I've worked hard in my, my career, but I've loved every minute of what I've done. So following your passion, I think, is a really important lesson. While at the University of Windsor, I found me. I mean, uh, being on the hockey team, it gave me the... The confidence, the friendship, and the development, it's, it's one of the major reasons why I'm a lifelong advocate for sport and physical activity because, again, of the, of the, uh, the uh, uh, tangential benefits in terms of uh, my development, my confidence, my personality, my enthusiasm, uh, all of those things I believe were honed and tempered through a sport experience. In the Faculty of Human Kinetics, we had a wonderful faculty, and, and while I was there, I, I came in contact with some great, great mentors. These people later became colleagues of mine when I joined the faculty as a professor and then later as a, as a dean, and they also are lifelong friends. But my hockey coach, C.C. Eves, uh, someone who took me under his wing and uh, really was like a second father to me. Another name that you'll be familiar with was Bob Bocher. Bob was yeah. a, a real role model for me, uh, Andy. He, he was somebody who was, uh, he was a gifted uh, educator. He's someone who, who uh, you know, every organization he got involved with, he ended up being the president. He was uh, just a natural leader and, and I admired him so much. Uh, I, would, I became Bob's first graduate student and we were very, very close. Now, Andy, I think it's really important that we all we all need role models. We all need people out there that we chase a little bit. And uh, I tell my students, you know, to to look for people that that uh, do things that you really really admire, whether you know them or not. But I think we always need to have something that we are chasing. And uh, what I've also come to realize is that we can also chase ourselves, what we might be in 10 years, mm-hmm. and then chase that individual and continue to move forward. So Bob was a real role model for me and really helped shape uh, me because of the, some, some of the things that I really picked up through observation. He was also a mentor for me. And I, again, I believe that we need three things. We need role models, we need mentors, and we need sponsors. Bob was a real mentor of mine, especially as a graduate student. He helped really advance my understanding of our field of sport leadership and sport uh, leadership in particular and sport management. He also was somebody who really took the time to to nurture me and develop me as a graduate student. So he was uh, and great mentors point out the good and the bad uh, areas uh, in need of improvement. But he always did it in a way that really was inspiring for me. Then the third component of that, that we all need, is a sponsor. We need people who are, will put their reputation on the line, who will introduce you to people, who will open doors of opportunity, and Bob really became that for me as well. You know, he worked really hard to help me with my first job, and he worked really hard to help get me back to the University of Windsor, and uh, he, he was somebody who I could always count on to introduce me to the key field, uh, members in our field. So the idea of role models, mentors, and sponsors, and I can, I found those at the University of Windsor. And again, like you, from a small town moving to a smaller university that creates those opportunities and that networking and that personal relationship was so vitally important.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when I hear your story, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that we do have natural strengths within ourselves as we journey through life. So if you were considering your story and your journey in sport, what do you feel some early strengths were that you possessed that helped to guide and navigate you on the path that you ultimately pursued in life?
0: Well, Andy, I think that there are a couple of things. The first, uh, the first thing that I point to is I have uh, an insatiable Uh, in level of enthusiasm. I'm really, really excited about learning and developing and, and experiencing new things. And, uh, I think that that's really, really important to to have that uh, curiosity and to have that enthusiasm. Now I have found later as a leader, I have to surround myself with people that can temper that a little bit. You know, I had an associate dean and I had him for nine years and he used to say to me, Jim, you're running with scissors. And that was his uh, code for saying, you know, you need to sometimes slow down a little bit because I want to do everything and I want to do it now. So that was something that I think was a strength of mine but it's also could be a, a weakness if, I, if I'm not careful. But the other area that I think that, that was uh, came naturally to me is just the ability to connect with people. So we would call that today emotional intelligence. So uh, somebody who cares deeply and genuinely about others, someone who listens, someone who tries to understand the perspective of others, someone who can work rooms really well, and really connect with people on an emotional level. And we know now in the leadership area, this is something that is absolutely fundamental. It's far more important than IQ. Uh, EQ is the measurement of emotional intelligence, and it is something that is really, really important. And I think that I brought some of that to uh, my early years and my formative years just through my upbringing, just through my genetic composition and the role models I had in my small town, But I've really worked hard to refine those skills and emotional intelligence can be developed. So those would be a couple of areas, I think, Andy, that uh, uh, if you were to talk to people who know me, uh, would say enthusiastic and he connects well with people.
1: Yeah. And when I I just want to give you a shout out because you and I had connected, we talked a lot and. I was playing golf with a lot of the golf members at the time, including our good friend Bill Segris, who's just a phenomenal Absolutely. athlete and great person, who also yeah. played hockey and golf. Um, yeah. When I think of you and the the connection that I had to you, I remember um, shooting my best round ever at Roseland, and uh, uh, you were the first person I wanted to share my scorecard with. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. I was five under going on to seventeen and went bogey bogey for a sixty nine but um, yeah. but I remember just being wanting to connect with you and, and share that experience with you and and yeah. you had recommended a golf book to me Golf in the Kingdom I think you recommended. Oh
0: absolutely. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, absolutely and it was reading reading golf in the kingdom that put me into this mind state to go out and play great golf um, but I, I just want to um, compliment you on that because you were that kind of mentor and person that I reached out to to connect with even though my my main sport was football and I had coaches on, on the football team, I still managed to find my way to your office to have conversations with you because yeah. you are just what you described, somebody who could connect easily with others. So I just wanted to share that story.
0: Well, so. thank you, Andy. That that means a lot to me. And that that's one of the real uh, benefits of being an educator. You're always around young, enthusiastic people that um, – and you can watch them grow and develop, and just you know, the I like to say the the, the further they go in their lives in their career, that you know, the, the happier I am for them. So, and I genuinely am. So, yeah,
1: yeah. and you know, I want to dive into the deep end now. Um, this this podcast is really going to dive into leadership, and there are countless books on leadership that uh, yep. around the world, right? Um, yep. But let's just begin the conversation with. Um, I really want you to describe what you feel leading with character means and after you answer that question i have a part b and the part b is what do you feel are some of the greatest barriers to living or or being your best moral self because um, you know this idea of morality really comes into the conversation as a leader but first let's just start with what do you think leading with character means
0: Well, uh, let me say this, Andy, and this has been proven empirically in study after study, the importance of character to leadership. In fact, it is fundamental. And as we talk about the book, I have it as the foundation to my model, the importance of credibility, because I, I actually have two components to that honesty, trustworthiness, but also being a credible source of information, being progressive, being innovative, staying up on your field and moving forward but the importance of a character is really really catching on in the in the in the literature in the research literature we have some colleagues here in the ivy business school that do some very fine work in the character and leadership uh, area and as mentioned uh you know, I look at the work of Kuz's uh, and Positis, for instance. They're two absolute uh, stellar leadership scholars. They have studied leaders for over 25 years, so different time frames. They've looked at leaders from a variety of different industries, sport, government, social movements, orchestra conductors, uh, business and industry. And what they have found, they've asked people, you know, leadership really distills to three things. It is a social process. Number two, it's synonymous with influence. And number three, it's designed to get people to do something to move things along to accomplish a predetermined goal, uh, something that the group can do uh, through synergy and uh, through that level of focus. So those keep those three things in mind. Well, this uh, Kuznets and Posner and their seminal work—they went out and they've asked. Their, their database is over 300,000 people, leaders for a whole variety of fields and the people who, who respond or who are influenced by those leaders. Asking them, what's, what qualities will you look for in someone you would willingly follow? And they provide a menu of about uh, 25 different indicators. Now, all of them are important, but what they found over the five different different data sets, what they found in different countries, what they found in different uh, ethnic groups, what they found with people who have a lot of experience and those who have less experience, what they found with education, those who are highly educated and those at the other end of the spectrum, the same four things came out time and time again. Number one, that you must be honest and not just some of the time, all of the time. Number two, you must be forward-looking. Number three, you must be competent. And number four, you must inspire because again, leadership is synonymous with influence. Now, I really do think that this relates to character. We have got to be honest. We've got to follow through on our commitments. We've got to do the things we say we're going to do. We've got to be trustworthy. If trust is not there, it's not going to fuel the change effort. It's so critically important. So I believe it is absolutely essential to leadership. It's foundational to leadership. But, and it sounds so easy, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's not. Because, again, leaders are always on. As mentioned, you can't be honest 99% of the time. You have to be honest all the time. You ha- you can't follow through part-time or, you know, most of the time. You have to follow through all the time. In this age of social media where news travels so fast, rumors travel so fast, it is really, really important that you walk the talk. It is really, really important that you are authentic because people will call you out on this and news will travel through social media at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. So it's really cr- uh, critical. So I can't underscore enough the importance of character and how character does shape uh, leadership. Yeah. You know, I often hearken back to, and I re- I'm a firm believer in sport and recreation as being a way of molding character. And I student a few years ago that went back and studied uh, student athletes. This was at my university at, at, at Western, studied basketball players who played 50 years ago and asked them to think about the lessons learned in sport. And do they think that those lessons helped shape their lives, helped facilitate success in both life and in their career? Very simple question. But what the the researcher found was that, A, these athletes didn't think too much about it. But when they did, they got going and they talked about all the different ways that they learned discipline and character and and, uh, overcoming adversity and how to handle success and how to handle uh, areas of, of failure. And upon reflection, they were absolutely certain that that experience really did help advance them and i think that there are a couple lessons in that number 1 we have to remind our alumni a lot more than we do about the great benefits acute from sport and number 2 i think we can do a better job of working with our student athletes that sport and recreation is about character development it is about learning leadership it is about uh, learning the s- types of skills and and uh, behaviors that are going to serve them well going forward so i thought that that was a really interesting mm-hmm. study as well and what it all points to is just the the centrality of character to leadership.
1: Yeah, and when I hear you describe that, and that is the challenge of good leadership is to be consistent and to show up consistently, um, living in accordance to their values, their beliefs, and and more importantly, the actions, thoughts, and and words that yeah. that come out. But, you know, Dan Ariely, Dr. Dan Ariely from Duke University, a a well-known psychologist and behavioral uh, psychologist of behavioral economics, says that many leaders want to view themselves as possessing good moral character, but some can fall prey to trying to benefit as much as possible from taking shortcuts or cheating the system in order to get what they want. Yeah. So he talks about this idea that Many yep. good leaders start off with great moral character, but they fall prey to these yep. patterns of behavior. Yep. So, what are your yep. thoughts with that? Like, what do you think, going back to the uh, greatest barriers to living or being your best moral self, like, what do you yep. think some of these barriers are, and some of the reasons why people with yep. good moral character fall prey to patterns yep. of, of poor behavior?
0: Well, Andy, you're, I think your dude colleague has it has it right. Or it uh, it gets me thinking a little bit about uh, what John Wooden, the uh, great coach at UCLA, used to say. And he said, "Don't worry about your reputation. Your reputation is a perception of others. Worry about your character. That is the true true sense. And uh, if you get that right, your reputation will look after itself." David Brooks is a New York Times author and he's uh, written a book called The Road to Character. And he profiles great leaders and the character attributes and uh, some of the the at, at times when your character is really tested and these, these great leaders actually come through in the clutch and it just underscores the importance of character and uh, uh, how important it is to leadership. So again, it's one of those things that... You're always on, and as your Duke colleague suggests, it's 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 not part of the time. It's 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 not what you you want to move forward. You, I don't want people to beat themselves up. We're always a work in progress, but I want you to really remember how important character is to leadership, and you have to continue to be your absolute best because you are always on. When you're in a leadership role, people are looking for you. And sometimes people are cynically looking for you to make a mistake, to screw up, to, 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 to do or say something that perhaps you, you, uh, you in, in hindsight should not. Mm-hmm. So you'll always want to be working on that. You know, it's maybe one of the things, Andy, that uh, I've been doing some work of late, and I'm just preparing a lecture for next week on leadership shelf life. It's one of the things that maybe is important for leaders to think about. When you stop listening when you when, when it you know what the shortcuts might be and and you're willing to take them when you're not open to new ideas when you're not staying progressive and innovative and maybe or maybe you're just tired of being always under the microscope, maybe it's time to find some new challenges maybe it's time to move out of that role because again it's so much you, 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 you your organization and you as the leader would be far better served by leaving early than staying around too late where you let some of those things slip a little bit. And I'm not suggesting that people do that, but there is a tendency if you're not careful to, you've seen everything before, you're not open to ideas, you discount opportunities because it might be just easier to go the tried and true method of the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And you know now's a good time to segue into your book, and, and that's another reason why I wanted to connect with you. So your book, The Five Seeds of Leadership, Exceptional Leadership Practices in Extraordinary Times. Let's talk about that and talk about first when the book came out. But more importantly, I want to ask you, when were the seeds planted in your head, like where you were thinking about wanting to write a book and then you kind of had the vision What was that like for you, that process, and what really inspired you to take pen to paper to begin the journey?
0: Well, thank you, Andy. I I appreciate your interest in the book. The book has been an an incredible uh, experience for me. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm working with a publisher that's connected with Simon & Schuster, and and their reach is incredible. So the book is on Amazon. The book is at Barnes & Noble and and, uh, Indigo here in Canada, their reach is incredible, and their strategy was very good as well. So they, it was initially released in hardcover and softcover. Six months later, it came out in, in digital format. And then six months after that, it came out in audio format. So I'm really pleased with how progressive this, uh, this publisher is. I wanted the book to, to make a difference. I want people to be able to either hear me speak about it or read the book and say, I can, I can do this. Because leadership is for everyone. People can be developed into leading. And the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that would sit on a shelf and nobody would pay attention to. That has not been the case. So it's had lots of media uh, exposure. I've uh, had an opportunity to do things like we're doing today. I've had a chance to speak at corporate retreats. I've had a chance to speak at different organizations. And, and I have a real soft spot for students, of course, the leaders of tomorrow. So I've done a lot of university tours as well. But I've had this idea for some time, and I've tested it with a, with a number of different people in different, uh, different settings, just really thinking about leadership. You know, I've been a dean for seven, I was a dean for 17 years, so I worked with some great presidents, great provosts, and great deans. And I worked with some that weren't quite as effective. And I really stopped to think about and deconstruct what were some of the practices that these great leaders put in place. I also had the chance, Andy, over my 36 year career to work with a lot of students. And as a dean, I would go out and I would visit with students in, uh, as part of alumni visits. You know, I would see students that seemed to have their act together. They were happy. Their careers were going well. Their families were, 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 were thriving. They just seemed to have everything going for them. And then I would reflect on some of those, uh, those individuals. And I, could, I was at a point where I could think back to them as students. Were they the best students in the classes? No, not even close. But they seemed to connect well with people. They, they, people like to be around them, their fellow students. They told interesting stories. They listened uh, to other people. They were popular because of these, these characteristics. So that got me thinking about all of this as well. So I've had the experience of testing this. I was, I did my PhD in leadership. I've done research and work with students in leadership. So I had some ideas about what leadership is. But i wanted it to make a difference i wanted to write something that people could get their heads around and put things in place right away and that got me thinking about it now what i needed to do was find the time to do it because again i was as a dean it's pretty hard to find the time to write and as a vice president international it it was very difficult to find the time to write but that vice president international role i did it twice and that gave me an opportunity to take some very long flights, and you would know from your life experience. Yeah. It's a long way to Australia, where I had I went four times. It's a long way to China. It's a long way to Europe, and I would take the time on those airplanes to really stop and think and deconstruct and, and to write and to polish and to edit and to share uh, my manuscript with some trusted mentors and colleagues and my wife is a great great writer and we were able to you know they were able to really work with the with the idea and then out came the book so it's been a, it, it's been something i had in my mind something i wanted to do i just needed to find the right time but it really is a culmination of my career as a research scholar but also my experience working with great leaders and working with great students and i I've, I've really worked a lot of those things in. And I couldn't be happier with the
1: response to the book. That's awesome. So we're going to dive into the, the five C's. But before that, I, I'm really, you know, one of the things that fascinates me I, and I have people from all different industry, all different backgrounds on my podcast. And I think that every person has a very unique journey that it that is very creative and innovative. A lot of times, it doesn't matter what they do. It, they, they're usually very creative thinkers. So for you in the writing process, when you settle into your airplane seat, um, no. hopefully business class or first class, a little more. No, little no, more I'm a coach. A coach. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. when you settle into your seat, whether it be on an airplane or a train or at home, yeah. Yeah. how long does it take you to get into flow? Because I do a lot of writing and I'm currently writing my, my first book and yeah. it it can i can fumble around and it takes a yeah. while and then finally yeah. i find some flow and then i'm into it yeah. that's yeah. different for everybody and it can change yeah. depending on the day but yeah. talk about the okay. writing process for you putting pen yeah. to paper and yeah. that idea of flow and really getting your ideas out on paper in that first draft is it just nonstop writing or do you take a lot of time to think do you want that first draft to be some writers want it to be perfect, so it's a painstakingly slow process. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. yeah, just talk about your own process of creativity and writing.
0: It's, it's really interesting, Andy. I'm, I'm, uh, I've listened to musicians talk about this process, and I've listened to and, and read up on great writers. And I, I really do believe that there are a couple of key things. First of all, I like to start with a mind map. That's just the way my brain works. If I can mind map out a chapter, what I want and how things will fit together, that helps keep me conceptually strong. So that process really works for
1: me. Do you start, key, Jim, do, do you start with like a keyword in the center of the page? Like talk about your mind map? Typically,
0: typically, yeah, typically. So if I was writing a chapter or a section of a chapter, and then maybe it's on emotional intelligence, I would start with that. And then I would branch off in terms of how that chapter might unfold with just uh, some keywords or phrases. So it gives me a conceptual roadmap of what it might all add up to in the end. So that is a creative type thing. And I have to be in that creative mode. But Andy, for me, and again, I got this idea reading about Ernest Hemingway and his, his approach to writing. When you are in the creative mode, you let it flow. You get your ideas on paper. You don't worry about grammar. You don't worry about spelling. You just get your ideas out. Because when you're in the creative mode, you want to capture that as best you can. There's another mode, though, and that's the editing mode. That's where you're very precise about grammar and syntax and spelling. And when you're in that mode, you're not thinking creatively. You're thinking more about making things correct. So I separate the two modes. It's just almost like I get lost and my ideas are just flowing. When I'm in the editing mode, I'll sometimes read this and I'll wonder what was I thinking. But for the most part, it's just a matter of now shaping it. And if I have that mind map beside me as well, I can see sort of where all the dots connect and things make conceptual sense. So that really works for me. But I tell my students as well when they're writing their thesis or dissertation, if you try to, cook, to mix those modes up, sometimes you won't get off the block mm-hmm. because, again, you want to make sure every word is perfect and all spelling and grammar is correct when really what you should be doing is trying to get your ideas out on paper. And the mind map really helps with generating that creativity. So that's a system that works for me, and I think it's worked for a number of students that I've worked with as well.
1: Oh, great, great. So let's jump into the five C's now so we have credibility, we have compelling vision, we have um, charismatic communicator, contagious enthusiasm and culture builder. So let's just do a little dive into each one of those things like just yes. a little snapshot glimpse into each one of those things and yeah. and your big advice related to each of those areas. So let's start with credibility and then I'll ask you about the others in succession well
0: andy i wonder if we might even back up to even beyond credibility because one of the things that i found to be very uh, it was inspiring for me it was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole process when the book was finished and the publisher had agreed that they wanted to publish the book i received a phone call from a graphic artist it was time to do the cover so she said to me she said well I want you to tell me about the book. First of all, who's it written for? And I said, well, I want, uh, I want leaders who want to become better leaders to read it and, and learn from it. I, want, I have a particular soft spot, uh, spot for students. I want them to dream big. I want them to think. We only have one opportunity here. Let's make it the very best that we can. And I want you to not put parameters on, on themselves. I want them to th- really think big. So she said to me, you mean like blue sky big? And I said, yeah, blue sky. Didn't say a word, didn't make any judgment. She just basically went away or she just made that comment. Then she said, okay, well, tell me what else? I said, well, I told her about the book and its contents. And I said, "The, the importance to me is that leaders are not up on a pedestal. Leaders are more part of a group or team. And it's really important that, you know, we operate as a team. And if we operate as a team, everyone can rise up. And everyone can can contribute and everyone can feel good about what we're doing. And our organizational and and, the units we're leading will be so much better because we have participative leadership. So that's why you see five ladders that are there and everybody, the metaphor of rising up. I wanted 5C to be prominent because that's my concept. I wanted extraordinary times because we are in extraordinary times. And then it was interesting because we finished, she said, well, is there anything else that you'd like to share? And I said, well, I said, you know, I want this book to make a difference. I want people to read it and be able to put things into place. I want it to be practical. But I said, another thing that I have, I wrote this book because I believe that if you've had any success in your life or career, you have an obligation to throw the ladder down to the next group and help them along. She said, oh, that's really interesting. Didn't say another word. About three weeks later, I get three covers and one of them, blue sky, 5C, extraordinary, five things all together, and my ladders were there as well. So that was a really interesting thing. You know, when you go into a bookstore and you see a book and you see the cover, you might think, well, that's interesting. But There's a real backstory to my cover, and it's just so meaningful to me. And you know, I, unfortunately I lost my great mentor, uh, my dear, dear friend and mentor and colleague, Bob Boucher passed away in yeah. December. I had a chance to visit with Bob uh, before he passed. I gave him a copy of the book. I pointed out the dedication to him in the book. And I said to him, I said, Bob, uh, I can never repay you for everything you've done for me. Uh, the, the, the time that you invested in me and how you helped me, but I will try. And my pledge to you is to work with my students, and to help them the way that you helped me. And he, he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, thank you, that means an awful lot to me. And it means a lot to me to be able to, be, to, to have told him that. And I hope that my students are inspired by me and I hope that they will inspire others. That's, that's the circle of education that never breaks. So that's really important. So that's just a little side bit on the cover.
1: Yeah.
0: But the five C's, uh, I hope that they make conceptual sense. And, uh, you know, some of my friends and critics will say, well, you know, you, C2 is about vision, really. And it is about vision. But I needed a C word, Andy. My model goes, uh, goes uh, down if I j- it's just vision. So I can't have four C's and a V. Yeah. But I think it's important that it be a compelling vision. It's mm-hmm. something that pulls things together. So let me just take you through. And, Andy, we can talk about them individually. Or I, I'd be happy to just give you an overview of all five of them. And maybe we can just focus on them after.
1: Yeah. Um, Why don't we just start with credibility and and give us a snapshot and then I might have a question about it. Then we can jump to the next one. Okay.
0: Well, credibility, again, we've we've talked about it already a little bit in terms of of character. It's uh, my credibility. uh, uh, There are two components to it. One, there's being honest and trustworthy. I, I view credibility and I use the metaphor of a house in my book. I talk about a house and with a strong foundation. And my model, uh, my strong foundation of my leadership model is credibility. Without credibility, the model is going to fall down, much like a house with a weak foundation is going to fall down. So credibility to me has two components. It's number one, you're honest, you're trustworthy, you follow through on things, you're a credible source of information. But I know lots of people, and you do, Andy, and your listeners do as well, who have those attributes, but they don't have the leadership. The second part is equally important, and that is you are also a credible source of information. People trust you as knowing what you're talking about. You are staying current. You're reading about trends in your field. You know things are happening going forward. They can trust you to have ideas, and they can also trust you to mine the ideas of other people. So we'll make great decisions. So credibility to me has two components it's the being honest and trustworthy but it's also being a credible source of information. And both of those those components are a work in progress. You don't have it, and and then it's over. It's day in and day out. It's building on that, building your credibility moving forward.
1: So, again, going back to this idea that the, the uh, misconception with leadership, I think, especially traditional leadership, is that people are born leaders. And maybe they have a genetic predisposition to... Okay being a leader in some yep. capacity. Yep. But um, I also believe Dr. Jim Lore, a famous sports psychologist who has worked with 17 world number ones in sport from various fields, yep. says that this idea of credibility and integrity are muscles that we can build just like yep. we can build our biceps in yep. the gym. So talk yep. about that idea. Mm-hmm. Is credibility something that you can you can build, or is it something you believe you you are naturally born with?
0: Well, I think uh, you know this whole idea of the, uh, the our leaders born or mate uh, there's been lots of research on that, and yes, there are some genetic uh uh gifts that people have. But the overwhelming evidence is that leaders are are developed and leadership can be learned. And yes, you may have some of those gifts that will help facilitate it, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be a leader if you have the gifts, and it doesn't mean that you can't be a leader if you don't have those gifts. But I do believe uh, in, 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 in Laura's assertion as well that, that credibility is built and developed, and you build trust. And you build on that with each decision that you make and each act where people see you as a credible source of information, where, where uh, people know they can count on you because they've been able to count on you in the past. And the more you do that, the more people will, again, uh, have a trust and faith in you. And if you stay up in your fields, if you know, think of higher education and how it has changed over the years, as an academic leader, if you don't stay up on, on developments in terms of alternative delivery and flipped classrooms and the needs of students and where students are, what students need and desire in terms of their education, things are gonna pass you by. You're not gonna be a credible source of information. So yes, this is like a muscle. You have to continue to work and develop it. And when you lose that zest for continuing to learn and develop and to continuing to, to earn the trust of your colleagues, It's time to leave leadership and find other areas uh, of of endeavor because you can't lead without it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, So let's jump to compelling vision. Yes. Well, the
0: important thing here to think in mind, leaders don't
1: have all the answers.
0: You have some ideas as leaders, but a compelling vision is something that transforms through the organization. And you'll see in the book, when I talk about compelling vision, I'm talking about simplicity. People need to know and get their head around what is it we are attempting to do. People need to also know what is my role in making this vision come to light. Number three, they need to know that what they do is valued by a leadership group. So I think it's really important that leaders set the stage for people to share their ideas about where we're going as an organization. And then leaders can use their experience and their credibility to help shape that into a um, bite-sized vision that is compelling, that transforms through the organization so there's clarity about what it is we're doing. In my compelling vision, if there's a clarity piece, there's an engagement piece, there's an ownership piece, and those things all shine through in my model.
1: Yeah, and, and I hear, you know, self-determination theory come out there, DC and Ryan, yeah. and their yeah. self-determination theory around the three basic human fundamental needs, autonomy, relatedness, and competence. Yeah, uh, And that when we get those human needs, when we satisfy those human needs, then people are intrinsically motivated to pursue their best self personally and professionally. Yeah. So what you just described in the com- compelling vision, and I heard you say it, is that it's a co-constructed experience. It's not a top-down vision pushed down, but instead it's co-constructed. So with this co-construction comes that element of autonomy. With that element of autonomy comes relationships. With that piece becomes competence. You're developing people's competencies and the ability uh, for them to express themselves in authentic ways and to build the skills needed to, to push that vision forward. So talk about that role of autonomy and how important that is in intrinsically motivating yep. stakeholders in the organization.
0: Well, well, let me pick up on your point, Andy, and you're absolutely right. Leadership today is about participation. You know, back in the early days of leadership, we talked about leaders and putting them up on pedestals, and they seemed to have all the answers, and they had these divine gifts that uh, separated them from others. That is Leadership today is about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's attracting great people to a team. How are you going to attract great people? When people know they can trust you, people know that they're going to learn something, people know that they're going to have opportunity to make a difference. Uh, I think it's absolutely fundamental to leadership to be able to, if you have that credibility and you do those things, you're going to attract really, really strong people. I think of the great associate deans I've worked with both at Windsor and at, at, at the University of uh, Western Ontario. I've been able to attract really, really strong uh, leaders that are part of our group. We make better decisions. They make me so much more effective as a leader because of the gifts and the skills and the energy and the emotion that they bring uh, to the table. So it's really important that that, that that indeed happen. And if you can't be trusted, if people don't think they're going to have an opportunity to, uh, to have input or that their voice is going to be heard, you're not going to attract the very best and brightest uh, leaders to your group. And team leadership is where things are
1: going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's jump to charismatic communicator.
0: Yes, you know, uh, communication, I don't know, Andy, if you've ever uh, encountered this, but I've yet to hear uh, of a leader criticized for over-communicating, but I've heard thousands uh, criticized for under-communicating. In this uh, charismatic communication uh, area, I say charismatic because what we want to do is inspire devotion. And the more I study this and the more I think about inspiring devotion, it's when you have knowledge, when you're seen as being somebody who has some ideas and you stay up on things, but you also care about people. You inspire their hearts. They want to, they they want to be involved because they know that you care deeply for them. So you communicate it in a way where emotional intelligence really does resonate, and the people know that you genuinely care about them. You care about them so much you're willing to share information, you're willing to ask for their opinion, you're willing to listen to what they have to say and to really seek to understand what what, what is on their mind. So when in my charismatic communication uh, uh scale. There is a great deal of emotional intelligence that is really shining through because I think it's critical to leadership. And you made a point earlier about leadership is really about developing relationships. It is. Uh, no question about it. This kuzn Fazer said this years ago as well, but they added one thing, that it, and, and relationships are founded on the basis of credibility, being a credible source of information and also being honest and trustworthy.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um, contagious enthusiasm. Let's jump over to that one. Well, you know, it's interesting.
0: I've been been influenced by a lot of great leaders. This is where my enthusiasm shines through. And naturally, any leadership model um, that I'm involved in has to have some idea of enthusiasm. But really, you can substitute passion for enthusiasm. When I say passion, I mean passion for people, for their growth and development and making sure that they are are maximizing their talents and gifts to the level that they want to do that. Uh, It's for passion for leadership to always stay up. If you're going to be in a leadership role, it's passion for continually learning about leadership and uh, continuing to redefine yourself in terms of your skill set and moving forward. And it's also passion for your industry so that you're staying up on the trends and developments uh, that are happening. Passion for people, that means that you pay attention to what they do. You recognize achievement. You, uh, you uh, have, you know, uh, my dear friend Richard Petty was the uh, president and CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. He, he felt it was important that staff members had the same awards that the, the athletes. So the, the Raptors and the Maple Leafs, they have MVPs. Well, we also have MVPs in our organizational life. Their plaque and picture were right up beside the, the Leafs and the Raptors. Coach of the year for that manager that that does things that, and again, we create awards for people and we honor and celebrate it. You know, it's been said, what we pay attention to uh, gets done. It's really important that those things happen. And uh, also training camp, the idea of having orientation programs, it shows an investment in people. And I took one of Richard's practices as well. I used to do this with my associate deans and school directors, and that is Give them books to read and then have sessions uh, retreats where we go away and we talk about what is the content in the book? What are the lessons that we can put into our leadership practices? What are the things that are going, how did this book influence you and in, in terms of your leadership style, all of these things, Andy, to me, point to passion, passion for people, passion for leadership and passion for learning in our field and staying current. And when you lose that passion, when you st- Feel yourself learning. You'll know it first. It's time to be thinking about something else, new challenges
1: and moving on. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I want you to dispel a myth that that good leaders are extroverts and good leaders are the rah, rah, rah kind of cheerleader yeah. type of people that get up there and and kind of, you know, that those big speeches and like get everybody going and clap, yeah. jump on tables. But that's yeah. really a myth. And Susan Kane wrote a, an amazing oh, book called uh, uh, quiet the, uh, yeah quiet quiet, quiet uh, in, in a world that can't stop talking so talk about the role of the introvert and and the power of the introvert because there's a lot of evidence around um, introverted leaders are sometimes the best leaders because they take the time to process and digest rather than speak yeah so just yeah. talk about the the role of the introvert yeah. versus the extrovert yeah. in leadership
0: I use a, a lot of uh, Susan Cain's work has really informed my work and uh, I use it a lot. And I find that when I'm speaking to audiences and I talk about introverts and the power of introverts and Susan Cain has some very compelling uh, examples of, of great leaders who were uh, more on the introvert side. You can see actually how that really speaks to people in the, in, in the audience who see themselves as introverts and think that leadership is not for them. You're absolutely right. Great leaders are ordinary people, some introverted, some extroverted, who actually really bring out the best in other people. The introverts are the deep thinkers that we really need. Now, here's what I think the talk home point is. I know, and again, my Myers Briggs supports this. I know that I am introverted or extroverted. Mm-hmm. I know that that's the way that I operate. It's really important for me to surround myself with people who are a bit more introverted because that makes us stronger as an organization. They think a little bit differently than I do, and uh, they make great contributions to what uh, we are doing as an organization. So I really do think that that's important. And I'm so glad you raised Susan Cain's book because, again, it helps dispel the myth that uh, you know, only the extroverts can be leaders. I do a little exercise in some of my consulting work where, you know, it's one of those, you're stuck on a desert Island. And you have to rank things one through, uh, through 15 in terms of tasks. I have people fill it out individually. I have them fill it out into groups and then I give them the so-called right answers based on an expert panel. And what we often find the introverts typically have the right answers, but the extroverts take over the group and, 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 uh, leads the group along a path that it shouldn't be going. We just paid attention to the introverts a bit more. We make better decisions as an organization. So that's a learning example as well. Leader Extroverts dominate conversations, but that's how we get into groupthink. And that's how we make decisions that perhaps aren't always in the best interest of our unit or our organization.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool that you mentioned that. We do that um, uh, airplane crash uh, orientation uh, simulation game and and uh, yeah we always we always find that like every every year we do a different like you know one time it was like uh, the plane crashes off yeah. the coast of Australia or something like that yeah. or next time it's yeah. in the in the desert yeah. next time but it's a fascinating uh, way to yeah. really yeah. work together as a group to make some important decisions so.
0: You know, one little wrinkle I've added to that exercise, Andy, and it's really worked out, is uh, I will put them into smaller groups so people all have an opportunity to say some things. But in each group, I have an observer that people don't know. I've got to these people ahead of time, and I want them to observe who's making decisions, who's dominating the conversation, what happens when people make a, a suggestion, and how far does it go, and how does it get quickly discounted? So they observe and then they report back. And they'll often say, you know, the introvert had the right answer. They would say what was on their mind, but the extrovert would discount it and move on to their answer. And they would just, you know, their voice was louder. Their chest would come out a bit more. And that's how they made the decision. And then we would follow up with the introverts after, you know, why did you allow that to happen? Well, you know, I, I put it out there, but obviously it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I just let it go. The leadership lesson is we have to mine the introverts and we have to mine all of our people to make sure that their ideas are at least considered because there could be some wonderful ideas hidden in there that we're overlooking.
1: Yeah, which which speaks to the importance of having protocols in place to lead discussions, because if there are no protocols or structures for leading these discussions on teams, then the extroverts can take over, minimizing the uh, impact that the introvert can have on the group. So um, that's one thing that we've really worked on here in our, our leadership team is having these protocols that allows equal yep. voice and yep. not let any one voice dominate. Um, yep. So Absolutely. That's, that's, I think, a very important point is to, to make sure yep. all voices are heard. But to do that, you need the protocols in place to bring that alive. So yep. let's jump to culture builder. The last one. Yep.
0: Well, let me get back to my host metaphor, Andy. Culture building is the roof of the house. The roof keeps the heat in in the wintertime. It keeps the cold out in the summertime and, and certainly the northern hemisphere. Uh, it keeps the, keeps the cold in in the summertime. So a roof in my model is very much like organizational culture. This is what happens when leaders are not around. Organizational culture refers to the beliefs, values and attitudes of people that, pri- that pretty much define behavior and when you have a very strong organizational culture, the members really talk about what's it like to be around here and how important it is that we follow certain rules of behavior. They really do help police each uh, uh, each other on this. And leaders can shape this in, in orientation programs and hiring decisions on, 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 Things that we recognize and reward on things that we punish and, and, uh, and hold people accountable to, it can also help. It has to be far more than visuals, but lots of organizations have done this. Oftentimes as well, we go back to the founders. Think about Henry Ford, who continues to be talked about in terms of the Ford Motor Company. Dave Thomas with Wendy's, the fast food company. Steve Jobs at Apple things along that Mark McCormick with IMG group where it's, it's what people really believe in and leaders. Edgar Schein once said that it's the most important task of leaders is to develop and embed a culture for the organization. Much like I think it's very important to put a roof on a house that will keep things uh, contained. And uh, so that's my, my final C. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, to have that con- that foundation and to have the roof And inside that house, it's where people set the stage for for inspiring people and inspiring great visions, communicating and engaging with people so that they feel really a part of something special, and showing a passion for people, for learning, and for our organization and where it's going. So that's where this metaphor all comes together. And I will say in my presentations to corporate executives, to corporate uh, members, to to service clubs and others, that people get that metaphor. It kind of makes sense. Uh, I came up with that just thinking about uh, uh, leadership and wanting to come up with something that people could wrap their head around. That metaphor has really worked for the model.
1: Yeah, great. And I want to just, before we segue to the close of the show, I want to talk about the importance of feedback. And uh, we used a book here on our leadership team called Thanks for the Feedback. The idea, it's based in the premise that we we must accept feedback in order to grow and learn and to be our yeah. best self. But yeah. a lot of leaders are, they don't make themselves vulnerable, first of all.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and they might throw out that yearly survey that asks for feedback, but they don't share it back to the team. Or they share as little as possible because some of the yeah. feedback can be harsh so talk about the role of feedback in in leadership and how important feedback is and vulnerability is in accepting feedback but not just accepting feedback but actually acting on it and having the courage to share the feedback openly with the people that you lead
0: well, I would say, Andy, that if, if leaders looked after the things that we talk about in the book, they wouldn't worry about that year-end survey because it, it would have the results that they're very happy about. But a vulnerability is really important. I, many times, and, and again, if you follow me around, I, I've said, you can't say this every day but uh, because otherwise you make making bad decisions, but you know, my bad. I made a mistake. Own it. People really do uh, value a leader who's Who can admit, I made a mistake. Uh, I think it's really important. That vulnerability shows the human quality that is so central to leadership. It helps build your emotional intelligence quotient up with your people. So I think it's really important. Leaders sometimes will hide behind these things, hide behind their authority, and then they're not leaders. It's more from a power and authority base. So I think if people do these things day in, day out, pay attention to others, uh, know that people are valued. They won't worry about those uh, year-end surveys, and actually you should be getting feedback every day in terms of uh, verbal and, and informal as to how we are doing. Uh, I know in the faculty I, again, my faculty here, 140 professors. Uh, uh, we had uh, uh, about 5,000 students, 5,300 students. This is a very large uh, faculty across six different schools. I would bring people together, and uh, in our strategic plan, remember, I talked about simplicity. We wanted to be a, a place that attracted the best and brightest students, staff, and faculty members. And we have lots of ways to measure all those things. We wanted to be research leaders of international prominence. There are lots of ways to measure those things. We wanted to be leaders on our campus, in our community, and in our professions. And again, when people did things, they were, became the president of the nursing association, or they were a leader on campus heading a, a committee. I would write in my dean's update and I would really honor these people or a faculty council meeting or any opportunity I could to say, I see that and we appreciate it because that's part of our strategic goal. And then our fourth plan, and again, remember the simplicity, four things, very large, complex faculty. We wanted to be a great place to work, study, learn and grow. And that's about organizational culture. So I would bring people together for lunch, just randomly select faculty and staff members. And we would have a discussion, what's working around here? What's going well for us? And we need to keep doing it. What areas can we improve upon? And again, when you ask that question, you better be prepared for the answer that you're going to get. And then you need to act on it as well. Hmm. So I think finding ways, formal and informal, where you can get feedback and you can let people know that their opinions matter and they are free to share those. There's no repercussions for saying negative things because you're trying to make us better and we honor that.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. So, so Jim, let's segue into just the the last part, which is uh, just a little bit of fun, and let's just talk a little bit about golf before we close the show. But oh, wonderful! um, Yeah. So, are you still playing? I know it's winter there. Um, I'm in Saudi Arabia. I play golf all the time. I just finished my captain. I was captain of the club for the last year and a half.
0: Oh, lucky! I I just handed over my
1: captaincy uh, last weekend in a tournament, the Captain's Day tournament. But um, Yeah. yeah talk about, uh, your golf game and, uh, where are you playing in London and and how's your golf game? It's, 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 uh, I, I still work
0: at it. I practice a lot, you know, it's, golf is a a sport for a lifetime. And, you know, you mentioned the golf team and some of the the people, Bill Segris and others that that played on the golf team. We've had uh, reunions the last couple of years. We couldn't do it last year due to COVID where I bring the golfers on our team up to Sunningdale where I play and uh, we have, uh, we are around a golf and uh, we have a barbecue after and it's wonderful. So I do play a lot. I don't play as many tournaments anymore, Andy, but I do play and uh, my handicap's gone up a couple of strokes, but I can still get it around. But I will say one of the real things that I've just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed is is watching uh, golf and experiencing golf through the eyes of my son. Uh, he's a good player and uh, I caddy for him in tournaments. He's played in the major events. Billy's also a real mentor of uh, my son, Zach. So I've really enjoyed spending time and watching his game uh, uh, progress to the level that it is. And, uh, you know, it uh, I don't mind being beaten by him and he, he does it uh, c- quite frequently. and In fact, always. And uh, but that's been wonderful. But I enjoy it. I enjoy the camaraderie. And, you know, golf is a game what we can play for a lifetime. Now, ironically, I still play hockey as well. I've been playing, uh, joined the hockey league this year and I'm playing three times a week pre-COVID uh, and that's been wonderful as well. So again, I think it's being authentic. If you love sport, you stay involved in it and uh, you keep going as long as you can. And I'm glad that you're still playing and uh, and showing your leadership as well at your club. And uh, I can't wait
1: for the next time for us to tee it up, Andy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let me just tell you a quick story about my, my son. So my son, so we're based in Saudi. Um, When we came here five years ago, um, I joined the club right away. It's a fantastic club, amazing layout, um, really cheap to join. It's subsidized by our organization. But um, my son, I didn't want to push my sons. I didn't want to be the sport dad that pushed his sons into playing golf. And they weren't really into it, to be honest. So I would drag them out there and then I just gave up. I thought they're going to end up hating the game. So I'll just let them, if they end up playing one day, great. So we had, uh, Saudi Arabia has really opened its doors. Um, They've done, they've made so much progress in the last four years. So it's not the Saudi Arabia that people imagine and they hear in the news. The country is actually really, really changing. So the European tour signed a three-year deal with um, the golf course right around the corner from us, not our course, but about 15, 20 minutes down the road. um, Beautiful 18-hole course right on the Red Sea. So I took my sons out to that the first year I volunteered and then my oldest son, well, he's 17. Now he was 14 at the time, 15. Um, he knew Dustin Johnson, you know, he had watched a bit of golf, Sergio. We were on the fifth hole, Sergio, Dustin, and Matt Wallace were playing together oh, Yeah, and yeah. it's, it's Saudi Arabia. So there was no fans. So we're just yeah. walking along. There's like 20 of us with Dustin and Sergio and Matt Wallace, Sergio walks off one of the greens and then he's, like, right in front of me, and he looks at Eli, and he, like, hands him a ball and smiles and says hello to him. And Eli's thanks, Sergio. Mm-hmm. And then Eli watched the golf the whole weekend, got a ton of golf balls, and was like, Dad, I'm ready to play. That was two years ago. So yeah. he's down to about a 10 handicap now. Oh, that's fantastic. And um, he's, he's seen the golf tournament every year. But last year, the amazing thing, Matt Wallace is a famous golfer from the UK. Oh, yeah, I know him. I know. Yeah. Him. I've seen, I've seen so him. Yeah. He, he was here uh, the, the three years, but in particular last year, my son, Eli followed him around for the first two days and he yeah. was the only one following him. So Matt was having a conversation with him every day. And on the final day, he said, Eli, come and see me after I, I got a couple goodies for you. So he gives Eli, uh, he meets him after he gives him four hats and gives him his three wood. oh my goodness yeah the three wood that he used and he's like you know just keep playing the game it's a great game like and then now he's Eli's hero Eli sends him messages all the time and and sends him like watches him in all the tournaments so Matt came back this year and because of COVID absolutely no spectators rigid testing so my son had to volunteer so he was stationed in a certain spot Matt saw him and walked over to him and said hey Eli how's it going how's your game um I got more goodies for you this year. Come and see me after. Well, Matt never made the cut. So, and he missed like a five footer to make the cut and was really pissed off. Right. So he just stormed off. Well, not stormed off. He, he was clearly upset. He left the course. And then I thought, Oh, Eli's not going to see him, but he sent a a message. Can you hear me, Jim? Oh yeah. 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 So he sent a message to Eli about an hour later on Instagram to say, Eli, sorry, I missed the cut. Uh, I'm not coming back to the course, but I've left some stuff for you at the Hotel Concierge. So the next day, Eli goes to the Hotel Concierge and, and Matt left him two hats, his driver and forward. Oh, my goodness. You know, and
0: Andy, um, uh, again, I follow the PGA Tour. You might recall I worked at the Buick Open for 15 years, which was a lot of fun. Um, my son uh, really likes the, the the tour as well. We've been to the Masters on two occasions. We have been to the PGA um, on a couple of occasions as well. But um, you know, I'm I'm really heartened to hear that story because I I have watched. I, I'm really impressed with Matt Wallace's game, but I find that he runs a little hot. And yeah. uh, I I would never have guessed that that he cares that much about young people. And uh, that's. Uh, That's wonderful. And again, that's where the idea of, you know, John Wooden perception and and uh, and truth and uh, character and reputation uh, really do um, because uh, enter into this. I I would not have guessed that that was the case. Yeah. And he
1: uh, he made it very clear to Eli. He said, please don't put this on social media. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He he would. But he was doing that because um, like he so it's even more authentic. Because if he was doing it for show, he probably would have wanted it on social media. So, yeah, no, I just, but that, that is the type of thing that, you know, as, as somebody in Matt's position, you have so much influence over young people and, and what an impact it is. It's had on my son. He's, he's, he's improving every day. He's getting better and better and uh, absolutely loves the game. So let's leave you with this question. And and,
0: and, and, that's, that's throwing the ladder down. Yeah, for sure. Throwing the ladder down.
1: So, um, let's do this. Um, end of your career. If somebody was to write a book about you, you have your book, the five C's, but if someone was to write a book about you and your life, what would the title of of that book be? Um,
0: well, that's a very good question. Um, well, hopefully it would have something to do with making a difference. Uh, I've made a difference in the lives of young people. I've made a difference in my field and um, maybe the difference maker or something along that, that would, that would be something that would be important to me. I, I hope that my influences help people. I, I, I really do believe that uh, that's a responsibility and obligation that we have and, um, so I, I hope that it would have something along the line of uh, you know making a difference. You know the the idea of the latter analogy. I, I don't want you to lose that. I think it really is important uh, to my philosophy. And uh, so I, th- I I think that would be it. I hope I've advanced our field, and and I hope that uh, I've helped leaders become more effective leaders, and I hope I've inspired students to to reach high and to to think about what may be. You know, this world will put parameters on you. Uh, it's up to us to to dream big and uh, uh, go after the seemingly impossible, but it is possible.
1: I love it. I love it. So, tell people where they can find uh, you on social media and find your uh, website yeah. or the information about the book.
0: Well, certainly, I'm on all of the social media channels, so Facebook and uh, and uh, and Twitter and LinkedIn. They can find the book and they can get more information at uh, at uh, www.5cleader. Uh, dot com and that will take them to uh, uh, a site where they can find information on the book uh, they can get the book through amazon uh, uh, and uh, that's one of the ways that most people do access the book and as mentioned it's in four different formats hardcover softcover digital and audio formats they can get access the book through audible as well which is is there so there's lots of ways to get it. And uh, I encourage people to follow me on social media because I do lots of posts on leadership as well. And There may be some things that uh, people will find interesting. You'll see that uh, in my social media feeds, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, who's informed my work. I'm a big fan of uh, Daniel Goleman, who does great work in the emotional intelligence area. They've been great, uh, uh, great, uh, they've great uh, scholars, great writers, and uh, I've really enjoyed their work. And I, I try to use as much as I can. And I'm trying to stay as current as I can. I've studied leadership for for 40 years in terms of uh, formally and done lots of research, but I I go to the World Business Forum every year. I try to get as much information, read as much information. I'm hungry for more and more about leadership, so.
1: Great, Jim. Well, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for your time. It's wonderful to reconnect with you and and great to have this conversation. I've I've
0: enjoyed it a great deal. Good luck to you and all the things you're doing. So thanks so much
1: yeah thank you and just stay on the line i'm going to close off the show okay, okay so very everybody good. thank you very much for listening to this episode with dr jim Reese, and i hope you come back to listen to future episodes